We are joined today by a very special guest. Josh, do you want to introduce our guest? Today on the Slums Cast, our 10th episode, we have a very special guest. It is the lead designer of Nisei, June Cuervo. How are you doing today? I'm great. The uh, degree to which I'm looking forward to people finally being able to see Gateway, it's very hard to contain. I've basically been forced to not think about Gateway for the last two months, so I, I don't explode. To make sure that everyone listened to this episode, because when people hear their scoops, I imagine that might invite some people who don't usually listen to Slumscast or potentially who don't know exactly what's going on and just heard that there are scoops. Let's make sure that everyone's on the same page. What is system update? What is system gateway? What do we have to look forward to in the near future, Netrunner-wise? System Upgate is an introductory base product for all Nisei's future releases. It's non-rotating, I believe, or at least like it's going to be around for forever, basically, because we're just going to have this as our cornerstone product for whenever you want to get somebody new into Netrunner, you're going to be able to play a game of Gateway with them. And Gateway within it will contain what we view as the most well-curated, well-thought-out, and carefully constructed introduction to Netrunner that the game has ever seen, at least in my opinion. We've built Gateway holistically to be something that you can have as like sort of with you, you can take to your local game stores, you can have as sort of like a mini board game on your shelf. Part of that is the dual deck component of Gateway, which is really emphasizing this idea of just like having two ready to play decks that are actually curated to teaching a new player how to play. Historically, we've had a lot of things like Snare is in the intro products from the previous makers of Netrunner. And it would say to not give them the tag, right? Because it was like too confusing, like it adds more mechanics. There's lots of rough edges like that. And we just wanted to really pare down Netrunner to its essence for when you're learning the game. And I think as we all know by now, Netrunner is an enormously complex game to teach, let alone play at any reasonable degree of skill. So, you know, with that being said, it was like very much our entire mission as an organization to figure out what foot forward do we want this to be when someone sees gateway and plays their first game of netrunner what kind of netrunner game do we want it to be and what mechanics do we include in that first few games to ensure that you're getting a lot of those core elements that you would expect in a netrunner game but it's simpler to sort of parse and understand for a beginner i love that mission having relatively recently had people at work in the board game channel at slack be like you know i've heard of netrunner michael i know that you play netrunner can you teach me to play Netrunner? And I'm like, yes, once I take apart three different decks that I have built because I don't have anything specifically for teaching new players put together. I love having just a clear experience to teach people Netrunner and to have them learn how to play the game rather than me saying, I don't know, uh, maybe this Val deck is kind of simple enough. And then I realized that it has some cards in it that are just bonkers. I actually wanted to kind of take it to something else and have you explain what system update represents, because I do think that that is ideally the next thing that somebody is going to get into after System Gateway, right? Definitely. I mean, part of the nice thing about System Gateway was to give people a starting point. Everybody can just point to something in the community and be like, I want to buy something for Netrunner. What do I buy? Okay, yeah. You want to play Netrunner? Buy this. And at the very least, even if you don't like it, it's like a board game experience. You just buy a $30 board game or a $50 board game at your local game store, and then that's it. Right. And lest we forget, that was how Netrunner started. You know, it, it got into the top whatever in BGG just as an intro set that was 
arguably not perfectly designed for new players. So uh, oh, it was terrible. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely horrendous. Yeah, um, <laughs> it was terrible. I mean, um, I credit Lucas and the original FFG team with a lot of great successes in early Netrunner, but the core set as a learning product, it is incredible that anybody managed to play a game of Netrunner. System update to sort of answer dovetail then to answer your question mm-hmm. is kind of like a corset in a sense, like a classical corset, because it has complex cards in it. System update is loaded with very complex cards that are even for some experienced players can struggle with all the things that they could do sometimes. So, you know, it's definitely the intention that we want you to have the tools to understand some of this legacy Netrunner content before you get it. But we also want you to have something that you can buy right away that's like, this is going to have a lot of cool stuff in it that is going to sort of enhance the gateway experience and make it so you have some more deck building options with your friends. But also, in addition to that, it's the history of the game. All the content in System Update is representative of cards we've played with in past metas. And I think it's really cool when someone buys Gateway and they decide they really like the game that they're going to be able to buy something that shows them where the games come from and the history of the game and what content the community's already loved and experienced and been familiar with for years and years at this point. Baking is like being the lead designer of Netrunner in the sense that I do not do either one and I'm not good at either one. Thankfully, we have someone here who has a much better idea of how to do at least one of those things. I don't know, maybe both. I do Uh, do quite a bit of baking. There we go, both of them. Unfortunately, we're mostly just going to be talking about the design part of it, not the baking part. I didn't actually write any questions about baking. Let's start off with what exactly does a lead designer do? When people ask me this question and, you know, when you're out and about, it's like, oh, what do you do for a living? I'm like, oh, I'm a game designer. You get a lot of different answers. The answer I tell people now, after having done it for the last seven years, professionally and for Nisei, only for like a year with Nisei, a lead designer, really a good designer, period. Your job primarily is to ensure that every single person you work with sees the same game. And that is very difficult. You do that through design, like designing the game. But if your engineer has a different game in mind mm-hmm. than you do when they implement your design, or your artist is imagining a different game than you're imagining, or your artist and your engineer can't communicate on technical implementation of something because they're unable to see the same vision in their head, you have failed as a designer. So what I do is I take everybody who works on Netrunner, development, creative, basically anybody, and even people in GLC and the beginner discord or anybody who talks to me. And I try to talk about Netrunner in a way so that everybody is thinking about the same game. And that is expressed through card design, but also through just how we are all playing and understanding and being a community and, you know, doing all these things around Netrunner. So it's very philosophical. It's not like, you know, what does lead designer do? But I usually lead with that because I think it's maybe the most important thing that a lead designer does, fostering that communication between everybody who works on Netrunner so that we're all imagining, we're all working towards the same end goal. And that has to come from design. It can't really come from anybody, anywhere else mm-hmm. because we're originating the gameplay and it is a game. That's the sort of flowery version of it. But the reality is, uh, as I grind through a lot of different ideas and mechanics, I run meetings with other designers, we share cards, we do rounds of feedback, I'm very product-focused designer, which means I always think about how does every single card feel like it belongs in this set. There's a lot of really great cards that I design and people in Nisei design, and they kind of just go in the bin because they're not a good fit for what we're working on right now. And for me, the big focus of what I do at Nisei is making sure that when 
bashes comes out and we start talking about bashes, every single card in bashes feels like it completely belongs there. It lives in an ecosystem of really cool effects and ideas and designs. It creatively makes sense thematically, like every single part of that card belongs in that set. So in five years, when you look at a card and someone's like, oh yeah, that was in bashes, you'll know right away. And then a lot of what the other designers are doing, and I'm helping too, although that sort of component of organization is a lot of design work. So I tend to leave the individual card design work to the other designers at Nisei more than just myself. It sounds like to me, and correct me if I'm wrong or wrong me if I'm correct. Wait, no, that doesn't work. It sounds to me like you're a little bit in the Rosewater school of design. Am I correct in saying that? Because what he's talked about is having a vision for the game in five and 10 years and coming up with these overall arcs and plans. And what I'm interested in is you say each individual card fitting together as a set. Oh, that's bashes. Is the same true of making sure that each of the sets go together and this is Netrunner? I don't really pray at the Church of Mark Rosewater per se. I think a lot of game designers really do. I think Mark Rosewater is an incredibly talented Magic the Gathering designer and his advice applies very well to designing Magic the Gathering content, but we are not Magic the Gathering. Our game is nothing like Magic. I mean, I say this as somebody who played the game for 15 years. I know very acutely that Netrunner is nothing like Magic. When it comes to sort of like building out that long-term vision and that sort of holistic vision for Netrunner, it starts with everything we make feeling internally cohesive. We do want to do some things where in bashes, we're going to plant some seeds for some future ideas in some other sets. And there might be some cards in there where you're like, this is neat, but it doesn't really feel like it, it has everything it needs. And then we'll have room to come back and revisit those concepts. So we are doing that future planning. And right now in design, we're working on three separate Netrunner products. So we have Bashes, which is in Playtest right now. I think it's in version like seven of Playtest at the time of this recording. So it's been Playtested for quite some time now. So soon it'll be ready to start getting all arted up. Who knows when it'll come out? Obviously not for a while, but... We're getting ready to start that process. Then we'll have Bell Tower, which is also a full cycle, similar to Bashes. And we're working on another project called Bijou, which is another sort of smaller interstitial product. It'd be something that releases between cycles. And it'd be kind of like Gateway, where it feels like this more smaller, self-contained thing. So those are the things we're working on, and we're working on them all the time. So we are working quite far out. And we're trying to make sure that the vision of Netrunner we're building is consistent across all those things. What do you think is the biggest misconception that people have about being a game designer? <laughs> There's a lot of them. I think the biggest one is people think you're a director. Good game designers are not directors. Games are among the most multi-talented operatic productions you could possibly imagine creating. Say like a musician records a song. That's a musician with a talent and a specific subset of abilities, right? Mm -hmm. Now think of an opera. You have stage managers, stage directors, the pit, the actors themselves, the singers, the backup, the director, the screenwriter, you have the people who do the captions for the audience, if it's like mm -hmm. an Italian or something. So you have this very multi-skill workforce. People are experts in very niche elements of what makes the opera happen. That is how game making works. If you are going to come into game making as a director, as a game designer, you're going to be very sadly mistaken to think that you have any sort of control over other people's individual talents and expertise, because you don't. I'm not an artist. <laughs> I'm not a programmer. I'm not a producer. You know, I'm not a marketer. I'm not any of those things. I'm a game designer. And to come into that experience 
thinking that my ability to design games supersedes other people's individual talents is very toxic to the ability to create a well-oiled team and a game that comes out feeling like a proper game that you want to play. So for me, when people is like, oh, so you're like the director. No, not really. I'm originating the ideas that we're going to work on. A lot of what I do at Nisei is like, what's some new mechanical space for Netrunner? And if the creative team's uninterested in that, or the development team feels like it's going to be too much work to play test, I'm not the director. They're experts in those areas. I have to respect their opinion and I have to iterate on my own ability to design. That's the biggest thing I'd say. Being a designer is about bringing your expertise, but not telling other people what to do. So you're saying that design can change based on things like art or things like feedback from, say, a rules team going, this is way too complicated to implement, or we can't do this based on our current rule structure. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Happens all the time. Most of the things we design have some problem like that. The standard of doing good design is very high. I think a lot of people think like, oh, you designed some cards and there they are. You can design a really cool card and 10 boxes have to get checked for that to even make it into version one of the file. It has to have sort of like acceptable length. It can't be overly complex. It has to be balanceable. It has to have enough knobs and levers that we feel like we're going to be able to adjust it because your first draft, guess what? It's going to be broken probably, or it's going to be unplayable or something. So you're going to have to work on that. So it needs to have enough diversity of numbers or effects that we feel like we can balance it. It has to fit the thematic point of the set. The art team might be like, oh, this is like a big pivot for this character. Like this is supposed to be their console. It can't really do this because they're supposed to be about this other thing. And this is very much not what they're about. So all these different teams are influencing the design process. And again, this is why I said my job is to create the shared vision of Netrunner because every single one of those teams has to believe in that individual design. And then I have to take all those little individual designs that people believe in and put them in one house. Sounds extremely complex. And then sometimes the reality is, is you spend two weeks working on a mechanic, you talk to all these different people, and we've had multiple times where I did two weeks of work on something. I had another designer work on me with it. We came up with a new mechanic. We had it all in a doc. We had example designs and we threw it out. You just can never take that personally. If you forced it through, the game would be worse for it. The team would be worse for it. And not only cause resentment, but it would just be an objectively worse game. And the reality is as a designer, you should have a high bar for what you put out into the world. It cannot be just like, this is my vision as an auteur and therefore you're all wrong. You're the one who's fucking wrong. Like these people are smart and talented and care about this. Like you have to listen to them. You can't be egotistical about it. This might surprise the slums audience a little bit, but one of the hobbies outside of doing this podcast is I am a writer and I hear a very similar thing when you talk with writing where there's a huge iceberg problem. People only mm -hmm. see the finished product. They see a very small profile everything is under the water. 90% mm -hmm. of the work that went into it is under the water and will never see the light of day because ultimately what you want people to see is the finished product that's very shiny and clean. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And this is my gripe as a designer probably. So excuse me for being whiny for 30 seconds. People don't view design as a hard skill. Everybody fancies themselves a designer all the time. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that you're not a designer. I believe you are. You know, anybody who wants to be can be. I'm not a gatekeeper about it at all. But it's important to realize that Design is a hard skill. It is cultivated over years of designing games. It is cultivated over decades for some designers, their whole lives. It is not a trivial thing to design a game and to make it feel that sharp, cohesive, aesthetic, crunchy game that you want it to be. It takes forever. And the difference between 
the really the difference between experienced designers and unexperienced designers is they know where the dead ends are because they've been down all of them. And it's true with writing too. You know what kinds of things are going to work in your stories. You've written a lot <laughs> and you've made mistakes. And it's the same with being a game designer. And some of the mistakes are still, you know, you make them again and again because it seems yeah. like it's going to be a good idea every time. Mm -hmm. You brushed on this briefly earlier. Mark Rosewater is a good designer for Magic, but Magic and Netrunner are very different. And you've been a designer, you've been the lead designer on games other than Netrunner as well. One thing I'm curious about, how does being a lead designer for Netrunner compare to some of those other games? No, it's way more fun. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> um, and that's mostly because I believe in Nisei as an organization. I believe in worker ownership. I believe in collective ownership. I believe in removing worker alienation from human lives to the best extent that we can. And part of that is a lot of the decisions I made as lead designer on other games was decisions that CEOs wanted me to make more than I wanted to make them. And any designer who's worked with the money people, as I call them, will tell you the same thing. There are no games that have been made that have been made better because somebody who did not work on that game needed to make money from them. They're all worse because of it. And Nisei is now making a game wherein none of us need to make money off of it. The purpose of making it is the collective joy of bringing Netrunner to the Netrunner community. There is no other purpose. We all individually benefit from that. We have artists in Nisei who were complete beginners two or three years ago and are now producing excellent artwork for cards coming out in Gateway. That has all been self-taught and communally taught from within Nisei. We have designers who, when I joined, I would consider to be sort of amateurish and rookie, who I now think would be worthy successors to me, if and when I would leave Nisei in the future, which not planning to do anytime soon. It'll happen one day, I'm sure. That's what Nisei is about. It's about that self-growth and that support and that lack of alienation from what it is we're doing. We feel very connected to it and we feel strongly about it. I love that. Again, I think this is something that you brought up a little bit earlier. And to be clear, I'm not looking for things that we can't scoop on this podcast. You know, I don't want to have a two minute section that we have to bleep out. Though, you know, we will if we have to. Did you come into the lead designer role at Nisei with specific goals for where you wanted to take Netrunner? I try not to do that when I join teams because I think it's kind of counterproductive. Everyone at Nisei had their own ideas about what they'd like to see the game become. Everybody at Nisei is a Netrunner player. I watched what Netrunner players say about the game. I've been in Stim Slack for five years. I'm in the GLC Discord now. I see a lot of people talk about Netrunner and what they want it to be. I have no incentive to fight that. It just doesn't make any sense. The question, of course, and this is a saying that you'll hear designers say, players are very good at providing problems and they're quite poor at understanding what good solutions look like. And that's not a criticism of game players. They're just not game designers. They're viewing the game as a player. So as a designer, I have to see what people say, and then I have to read through the lines and figure out what it is that they want to ha actually have happen. And some of that is quite polarizing. So for example, among my other hundreds of polarizing game design opinions, I'll posit another. Caprice Nisei is a perfectly designed Netrunner card. And part of why it's a perfectly designed Netrunner card is whether or not you know it, it creates the exact kind of gameplay you want out of a Netrunner game. It turns sure things into gambles, it takes games that would be trivially over and makes them nail biters. It equalizes games among highly skilled players and inferior players. It does everything you want a good card to do as a role player in a game. Now, if you said before Caprice came out, what do you think Netrunner needs to make the games feel closer and more competitive? Nobody would have designed Caprice Nisei except for a game designer. And that's just how it works. 
the game designer's job is to find what people are saying and find the manifestation of it that represents what they want, that shared vision of the game. That's fucking sick. I wasn't playing before Capri Nisei came out. Capri Nisei was a known quantity when I started playing the game. I, it sounds like based on the timelines, I started playing maybe six months, a year after you. So Caprice was very much a known quantity at that point. In my opinion, HQ accesses are inherently more interesting than R&D accesses, and it kind of turns the remote into that. Exactly. Or it can even turn an account siphon into that. It makes the remote into expected value. So expected value is a concept in, it's in poker and lots of other games, and in a range of outcomes, how much do you expect to profit every time you engage in the outcome or engage in the process? So you get a random outcome. So in R&D, your expected value in accessing the agenda is about one in five. So you score a fifth of an agenda every time you access R&D from an EV perspective. That's how you think about that from making like a mathematical judgment. And Caprice turns the remote, if you have a GFI in the remote, you're going to score a third of a GFI every time you run that remote. That's like a weird way to understand it because there's only one outcome. You either steal it or you don't. But in reality, what's happening is you're stealing it a third of a GFI every time you run it. I love the fact that Caprice does introduce randomness but in a way that still allows skill and still allows good gameplay decisions. You know, it isn't just a pure third. If you're confident in your ability to win a side game against someone, you can make a bigger variance play because you're betting that it really isn't two thirds. It's 100% that you keep it. Mm -hmm. Yep. One last question on this topic, and this is sort of two, so it's kind of two last questions. What did or what do you see as the biggest challenges unique to designing Netrunner? So Netrunner is a very freeform game. So a lot of what I view as the biggest challenge of designing Netrunner is funneling players into lines of play that are coherent within the cards they're playing. So part of what that is, is every game, and this is related to Gateway as well, but I think it's something that should be contiguous across all Netrunner releases. When you teach someone to play Netrunner, you sit them down, you're like, okay, this is what a program is, what a breaker is, like these are the things you can do in your turn. And then they draw their hand and you go, okay, go ahead. And they're like, Okay, so what can I do? That's always the first question they ask. Okay, so what do I do? Because they know what all the cards do, but what do I do with my cards? Like, yeah. I don't understand. It's very difficult to parse it. And it's because Netrunner is a sandbox game. It's an action economy game. A big part of what I'm trying to do in design is making it so that the cards you play with at least suggest to you what a good strategy looks like, more than cards historically have done. In Gateway, there is a little bit of that. It's not as though every single thing in the game has to do that. You know, that's like not the goal. The goal is just to make the game a little bit easier to find like what something approximates an okay play, especially for somebody who's a more casual player. So that's a really big challenge, the sandbox element of the game. The other thing is that Netrunner is a toy box, the content game. So I'll give a quick metaphor. So you're gonna design a game, you could design your game like Disneyland. And that means that it's a perfectly curated manicured experience. Every single thing you do is completely set up for it to be exactly the way you see it. You have every experience they meant you to have, and you get all the satisfaction out of it. And everybody is the exact same experience at Disneyland every time, perfectly. Hearthstone is a game that's a lot like that. Netrunner is not like that at all. Netrunner is very jagged. It has a lot of rough edges. Games against the same decks are wildly divergent in terms of their overall course and play patterns. Uh, and that is what I call a toy box game. So mm -hmm. a toy box game is a game where the designer gives you a box and it's full of a bunch of toys and they all go together and you can play with them however you want. No one's saying, you know, you have to ride this ride first and then this is where you go in Disneyland. It's nothing like that. It's just, mm -hmm. here's the box of stuff. Have fun. Play whatever game you want to play with these toys that I've given you. That makes the game inherently much more difficult to design. 
the kind of game Netrunner is. When you try to force people to play something a certain way, when you try to put some of that Disneyland energy into Netrunner, it's met with revulsion because players expect that creativity and that agency and that desire to express themselves. You can't really express yourself in Hearthstone. You can have a deck that you play and it's your deck, but you're not really expressing yourself. You're meant by the designers to play that deck in some sense. You were meant to ride that ride in Disneyland. You're meant to have that moment with Mickey Mouse. There is no part of you that can have creative agency over that experience. It's an, an experience that is happening to you. Netrunner is a game where you impose the experience onto the game. You impose the way you want to play the game. And as a result, the kinds of content that you need to make in that game are mostly where there is a lot of small nuanced interactions across dozens of pieces of content. It's not like I play a card that costs one and then card that costs two, and then this com A combos with B, and that's what this deck does. Netrunner doesn't work that way. It resists that. It's much more about finding those nuanced interactions, Stimhack SMC, Data Sucker Parasite, small toolboxy interactions that are cohesive across the entire card pool. That is what I view as the main challenge of designing Netrunner. By the way, I'm not criticizing the Disneyland approach. I think there are great games that use that approach. I happen to love Hearthstone. I think it's a very fun game, but it's not the Netrunner. There's unique challenges in each approach, but I would say the toy box approach to game design and content design requires quite a lot more attention to detail in terms of just ensuring it doesn't break itself, like it doesn't like collapse in on itself. It's a big challenge in that particular regard, is making things feel cohesive enough that they belong together, but also distinct enough or individual enough, I should say, that they don't feel like they're a part of a Disneyland experience. That actually kind of makes me hopeful for the future. We've seen so. what... <laughs> Well, we've seen what happens to Netrunner when there's design that's not cognizant of that fact. We've had some wild, wild decks that have made the game go off the rails. I mean, we <laughs> you could argue Dumble was like that. I would argue that it's a little bit closer to the fundamental idea of what I, at least I think Netrunner should be. But DLR, you cannot argue, was not an off-the-rails wild deck that just did something that nobody expected a deck to be able to do in Netrunner. The same is true of Diaper. The same is true of uh, CI7, the Ooh. Brain Rewire decks. Some of the more Disneyland-ish cards, MCA Austerity Policy fits a little bit in that bucket too. It warps the game to be about MCA Austerity Policy. But even there, the resilience of kind of Netrunner being this toy box game, you can ignore it. You can completely ignore that card and still win the game. Mm-hmm. Again, I think some of those is the correct move. Having those be the top strategy, again, like DLR, is not the right move. But that's an opinion. I know. I understand. And with that, we have reached the end of our 10th episode. That is still crazy to me. If you liked what you heard on this 10th episode, go ahead and follow us. You can follow us in basically every major podcast outlet for some reason. They all have us. I don't know why either. But you can follow us there. You can look at the other nine episodes if you haven't listened to them. And I can't guarantee that any of them are as good as this, but they are there. And special thanks, obviously, we have to give special thanks to June for being on the podcast this week. June, do you have any shout outs you want to give while you're on here? There's a lot of things at Nisei that happen individually, and you don't ever see any of it. There's a lot of people and they all do a lot of hard work. Shout out to all of them because despite the fact that I'm a sort of public figure and that I'm the lead designer, it's an incredible amount of work. There's no way I could do it on my own. There's no way I could do it with five people or 10 people. It really does take 
everybody at Nisei to make it happen. Really shout out to them and shout out for some reason that everybody still plays Netrunner. 